The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I really love today's passage because it's about the power for and the process towards true change. And we'll see that from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Pastor Tim Chester also struggled with watching people change over time. And so he wrote a book called You Can Change. And in the book, he made composite pictures based on true people he's known and changed their first name, of course, for sake of anonymity. In the books, he he talks about a man named Jack. Jack had had intense struggles with lust in his teens. And 20 years later, he thought marriage might sort all that out. But in fact, he was ensnared in a harmful, addictive sin pattern that he was not changing in. Carla, he says, would be someone who externally would seem to be a very respectable Christian. But actually, she's irritable and complaining commonly in her life and in her Christian service. His third composite picture is Colin, whose life was turned around radically the moment he was converted. He left an adulterous relationship, stopped getting drunk, but now years later, he also, though externally, looks respectable. He's known privately for his his temper and his dangerous, hot-handed nature. His fourth composite picture, if shopping were an Olympic sport, Emma would be a medal contender. She's not had an easy life, and shopping cheers her up. New clothes, something for the home, luxury foods, those are the bright spots in her life, her compensations, but her generosity is only towards herself. Finally, Jamal was someone that the church would have thought is, boy, the future, the bright spot, that natural-born leader. But it became apparent that his diligence was actually driven by a need to prove himself. He wanted a position, but in fact, privately, there were fears and insecurities and withdrawals and uh, undiscerning heart of who he was. Is there hope for that kind of change to happen? Look in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the good news, verse 13. For it is God, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me point out some encouraging thoughts right up front, and then we'll knuckle into them more carefully. First, notice the word salvation is being used in a way that assumes progress and growth. Have you ever noticed that many Christians use the word saved strictly in the past tense? They'll say, years ago, I got Saved, And that's true. That is part of what salvation is. But did you know the Bible normally uses the word salvation as an umbrella term that includes the moment you were converted, but much, much gloriously more than that? Also, all the growth and grace. And finally, the glorification of heaven itself when we see Jesus face to face. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which you received past tense, by which you are being saved, present tense, if you hold fast unless you believe. In vain. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that we are being saved by the power of God. We actually read in Philippians 1.28 that we will be saved in the final day. 
1 Timothy 4.16 tells especially pastors, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Because by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. Are these texts saying that we earn our salvation? No, Christ has earned it all, but we experience it from first to last, as Romans 1 says. So salvation is an umbrella that includes everything. And that gloriously means that we can change. So let's start with this biblical truth. All change by God's grace is possible. All change by God's grace is possible. So if change is possible according to God, how does it happen? And this is where among Christians we have some intramural debates. I'm going to give you a very simplified sketch of how Christians in church history have debated this question. But if you want to go really, really deep, I have a lot of pages that I threw out this morning. (laughs) I can give them to you if you want to read more. But here's an overly simplified version. In church history, there's been essentially two views. The first is called quietism. Think of the Quakers, if you had oatmeal this morning. So quietism, which essentially argues that the believer is quiet, he's passive. Maybe you've heard phrases like, let go and let God. I can't, he can. And so in that tradition and in that strain, the idea is the only way we can grow is by actively leaning into our inability that we can do nothing. The opposite version of Christian understanding of how someone truly changes is normally known as pietism. And that teaches that you can grow by God's grace at work in your obedience. So if you're a passive quietist and you believe there's nothing you can do, then at some point you hit a logjam. Because you consecrate yourself, you dedicate your life, you totally let go and surrender, and then do you know what happens the next day? You sin again. And whose fault is that? I mean, if you totally surrendered and totally let go, and God is not the author of sin, then why are you still sinning? You see, there's just an obvious problem there. I didn't realize it at the time, and I'm very thankful for the church I grew up in. I heard the gospel there. But I now realized with the benefit of theological hindsight that I grew up in a quietism church. We would have altar calls and dedicate your life services. And every summer camp, you were supposed to rededicate again. And I did so with such genuineness and sincerity. And then I found that I would still sin again. To which I'd been told it's because you just didn't consecrate enough. You didn't dedicate enough. You didn't let go enough to let God enough. But in reality, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tells us how these things work together. Would you look in the passage again? We, notice in verse 12, are to work out our own salvation. We have a responsibility to play. But who gives us the strength and power to do that? Notice verse 13. For it is that God who works in you. The Greek word translated work in verse 12 and 13 is the Greek word energeo. That's where we, of course, get our word energy. The energy to change comes from God. But his work works in our work. It produces energy that changes in us. Maybe you've heard this humorous story. I've always loved this story. There's a man, there's a flood, and his city is drowning, and he gets on top of his roof. And he prays, God, I, I surrender, I consecrate my life to you. Please get me out of this. And a few hours later, there's a raft that floats by the roof. 
Oh God, please get me out of this. I let go. I surrender. And then several hours later, a boat comes by the roof. And the guy says, come on, get on the boat. No, Lord, I surrender. I consecrate. I let go. Several hours later, a helicopter swoops in and lowers a a rope for him to climb on. He says, no, no, I'm, I'm praying and I'm trusting God and I'm surrendering. The helicopter zooms away. The man says, God, please answer this prayer. I'm dedicating. I'm surrendering. I'm consecrating. And finally, God's had enough. And he parts the heavens and he says out loud, I sent you a raft and a boat and a helicopter. What else do you want? (laughs) See, this is sadly what many Christians have been falsely taught. That if I just take my hands off the wheel and Jesus takes it, then there's no part that I have to play. But brothers and sisters, the great truth of this passage is we get to experience God's work in us through real, tangible change. We get to work out our salvation. It isn't just consecrate sin and then reconsecrate. No, it's grace-enabled, active effort. Did you know that God actually has saved you for that? Many of you can probably quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But do you know verse 10? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, so that we might do good works, which he has ordained in advance for us to do. See, God has actually saved you to experience the gradual growth that salvation continues. The Bible has hundreds of imperatives that tell us put off, put on. Romans 6 says it so memorably. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. Those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? So this passage gives us good news. Change is possible and change occurs as God works in our work. So now, if you're following the notes We are now at number one. Work out your salvation. Make active effort to grow in salvation. Verse 12. Let's look at it again if you don't mind. Therefore, my beloved. He's writing to Christians. Beloved. As you have always obeyed. Let's pause on that word obey. Sometimes when we hear the word obey in our ears, that makes us uncomfortable. Obey, that implies authority. Does that mean I'm trying to earn something? Listen. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We can't earn our salvation, but that doesn't mean there's not effort at work to carry out our salvation, you see? See, all religions teach, all religions, all of them. You don't have to go to a college class and learn them all. Let me just, this is all of them. All religions teach, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel teaches, I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. See, it's the exact opposite. We get to enjoy the grace experientially that Christ has secured for us. So verse 12 says, obey. Yes, Christian, should we obey? Yes. But not as the basis to earn a relationship with God, but as the pleasure of being God's. Have you ever been in a court and you see the Ten Commandments? Do you know what part they never put there? It makes me so mad. (laughs) They don't put the first two verses of Exodus 20. Do you know how it starts? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't, do this, and then we'll have a relationship. No, the Ten Commandments are, I rescued you and saved you. Therefore, you can enjoy these guiding truths. It's not about earning something so you can be right with God. It's about enjoying the life that God has given you. 1 John then writes this in chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, for a believer, God's commandments are not burdensome. Man-made commandments are always (laughs) burdensome, but God's commandments are not because we know He loves us. This passage then unequivocally tells us, yes, work out your salvation. Notice verse 12 continues. Obey not only in my presence, so not only when someone's there, but notice the next phrase, but much more. If there's a much more, do you know what that means? You can progress in your holiness. You can grow in your salvation. You can actually mature as a Christian. If there's a much more, That means that your Christianity can be deeper, richer. Much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear means reverence. Trembling means awe. Now praise God, when you're not a Christian, you have the fear of someone who doesn't have a relationship and could face calamity. But when you are a Christian, you have the respect that a child has for a father he loves. So here's a relationship based on that. Don't don't miss, the root of our salvation is Christ's merit alone, but the fruit of our salvation is Christ's work in our work. The cause for our salvation is Christ's work alone, but the effect of our salvation is Christ's work in our work. The reason for our salvation is Christ's work alone, but the experience of our salvation is Christ's work in our work. Gordon Fee writes it this way, salvation is from God, but it's not only something we receive, it's also something we do. We work out our salvation. It's not our part and God's part, it's God's work in us. God works in us, verse 13 tells us. That means that God's work is the prior source and the present power for true change. God's work is the prior source of it and the present power power for it. So now number two. Number one was work out your own salvation because it is God uh, with grace enabled effort. But now number two because God works in you. Your active effort is grace enabled. So now verse 13. For it is God who energeo works in you. Now notice two things. God will change in you progressively. Your will which is your desires. It's the word thelo. And your work, which is your deeds. So let's pause on both. So Christian, God will change your desires. Can you think of things you used to desire that you don't desire anymore? Can you think of things you used to loathe that now you love? This is evidence of God at work in your desires. Secondly, God changes not just your desires, but your deeds. Which means it's not just your heart he changes, it also carries out to fruit people can see. It changes your speech, changes your actions. Can you think of things you used to say that you now think are wrong? Can you think of things you used to do 
that you no longer wish to do. This is what it means that God works in us. And it means that salvation, though personal, is never private. And we're about to see that in verses 14 through 18. So number one, work out your salvation. Number two, because it is God at work in you. But now number three, work out your salvation outside in the public square. Look at verse 14. The text goes on to say, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So your salvation that changes you, changes you in public view so that God is glorified. Verse 14 gives us a very strong Imperative, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is the word for complaining. Disputing is the word for arguing. In context, the all things would refer especially to growth in salvation, growth in the gospel. The story goes that John Wesley was, was preaching one day and he finished his sermon and a woman came up to him from the pew, walked up front, said, Pastor John, I, I have something I, I need to say to you. God gave me the gift of criticism. (laughs) And I have found an offense in you that I need to correct. Let me fix you. And John very gamely said, okay. And then she pulled out a pair of scissors and she said to Pastor Wesley, your tie is too long. And she reached over and cut his tie in half. And then Pastor Wesley looked at the woman and said, woman, I thank you that God has given you the desire to critique So perhaps he will give me the desire to return. (laughs) If you could please hand me your scissors, I find something in you that I find offensive. Now, woman, hold out your tongue. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't cut it in half, for the record. But it's a reminder of this text that if a Christian is to do all things without grumbling or complaining, that criticism I assure you, is not a gift of the Spirit. (laughs) When you read the Galatians 5 list, you will not find that fruit. Christians then should be characterized by our willing heart and our unity in the gospel. We saw this already in Philippians 1, verse 27. I've been praying this for our church very regularly. Look in verse 27 of Philippians 1, if it's not too far for you to move. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If the gospel gives us one mind, then what do we have to complain or argue about? We can grow in grace together And we can advance the gospel together. Even if we don't always agree with how to do it, we'll find that we have assurance in God's ability. Now notice verse 15. Don't miss the promise of this. When Christians aren't complainers or arguers, here's what can be true of us. Verse 15. We can be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This week I read very appalling news and I I can only speak about it sensitively. At Liberty University, the leadership of that university was revealed to be living a very ungodly life that was exposed in a way that's terribly embarrassing, that destroys the promise of this verse rather than shining like a light in a dark world. Instead, they have dimmed and destroyed a light in a dark world. 
Every time I read about a Christian who is eventually discovered to be very ungodly in their life, I have two feelings that I immediately feel. One is that I want to affirm this thing first, that every single human being is a hypocrite of even their own morality. Meaning that Romans 3.23 is correct when it says, for all have sinned. Meaning all of us need to be saved and forgiven by Jesus Christ. But there's a second feeling that I always have right afterwards. But we should expect a Christian, though imperfect, to be genuinely Christian. Because someone who does say, I'm a follower of Christ, should also be able to say, so follow me as I follow Christ. So that our lives, though not imperfect, are genuine. Now let's look at the verse in light of this situation at Liberty. Listen, this is for you, Christian, and this is for me. We need to live a life that is blameless. That does not mean perfect. In the Bible, it means sincere and genuine. It means if everything about what's going on in your life privately was played on the screen today, None of it would be so disqualifying and embarrassing that it would besmirch the name of Christ and dim the light of his glory. The second one is innocent, which means wholesomeness and character. Christian, is your life characterized these ways truly? If it was publicly seen and inspected in the way that a leader of a university's might be, do you know why it should be? Because of the next phrase in the verse because we are children of God. That is not just a privilege, it is also a responsibility. We are to reflect the character of our Father. We are to be light that shines, that shows His character. Reflectively, not perfectly, but reflectively. That's why the next phrase says, without blemish. And that phrase is used in the Old Testament of a sacrifice that's qualified to be set apart. And in that way, we shine like stars. I don't know if you do this at Emmanuel, and I'm a joy now to call myself a part of Emmanuel, but for years when I pastored in Michigan, one of my favorite worship gatherings is Christmas Eve. And my favorite part is when we turn all the lights off and everybody has a candle, and suddenly there's this radiating glow because each person is shining light, contrasting the darkness of the room. See, that service is so beautiful, and I pray this year it'll be warmer than it's ever been for me, and there hopefully won't be snow outside. (laughs) But that service is beautiful because it shows with just this clear image that even our children can understand. This is what a Christian is supposed to do, to let our light shine so that people will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This is a privilege as a believer. Verse 16 says how it happens. As we hold fast to the word of life, as we read and cling to scripture, following it as truth that has the ability and right to correct us. So that in the day of Christ, Paul wrote about this church and may be true of our church, we may be proud that we did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do you know what he means by that? He'll explain in verse 17. Let's keep going. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, he means even if I'm executed in prison, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I will be glad to be executed and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me because you are still shining as a true light. His point is I'm willing to die 
enjoy knowing that your faith was for real. And I'll know it's for real when that light shines. See, the thought of death is a sacrifice he's willing to make because of the faith that it's produced. Now this passage has told us that we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling because it is God at work in us. And what does God change? Our desires and our deeds. But how is that possible? Because though we are children of God, we only became children of God because of the one perfect true Son of God. Think of how His desires and deeds make the good news of the gospel possible. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was to be crucified, he prayed this in Luke 2, 22, 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the reason God can change our desires is because Jesus was faithful in his desires. Also, when it comes to deeds, what you do. Hebrews 10 writes in verse 5, When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not asked for, but a body you've prepared for Me. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. Our desires can change because Jesus' desires were perfect, and our deeds can change because Jesus did perfectly what we never could. So this morning I want to encourage you that you can change. That you can change because of the salvation Christ secured. So hear me well this morning. If you've never come and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot change. But the day you come to Christ, you can begin to change. And Christian, if you've been a Christian 40, 50, 60, 70 years, you're not all yet that you should be. But praise God, you're not what you were and he's not done with you yet. And he can continue to work out the salvation that he's begun in you. So Christian, this morning, remember, there's no, there's no desire that he cannot change. There's no deed that he cannot change. So come to him with the energy and commitment of someone who's ready to work out their salvation because they know it is God who works in them for his good pleasure. Let's close in prayer together this morning. Dear God, I thank you so much that when you looked down from heaven and saw the world of sinners, that you did not immediately cast us all into eternal condemnation as you could have. But instead, you demonstrated your love for us like this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that Jesus' perfect desires and Jesus' perfect deeds are the reason sinners can be cleansed and made clean. But I thank you even more, Lord, that not only did you rescue us where you found us, you are not content to leave us there. And so from one degree of glory to the next, we are being transformed as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Though right now we see through a glass dimly, one day we will be like him for we will see him as he is. So in between the moment the light turned on and the end where we're with Christ, we now get to experience change. And that change happens as you work in us to desire differently and to behave differently. So Lord, help us to bring all of the effort that you're at work in us into our change project. But Lord, help us not to do it ultimately for us, but so that we would shine in a dark world and show how great our God is.
Because the truth is, when the world says, how come you Christians don't practice what you preach, they have a fair objection. And so if we don't actually live like a believer lives, it confuses the gospel itself. We're not perfect, only Jesus is. But change us into what we can be by your power. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.